We're going to dig into God's Word together. So if you could grab your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seats below you or in front of you. Uh, but before we start, I need to apologize for an inadequate explanation last week. Fred Tribble was so kind as to um, notify me that I did not explain something very well, and I appreciate that. Um, I appreciate criticism and comments from sermons. I also appreciate encouragement, too. Um, so whatever you're, whatever you're willing to give. Um, but Fred, Fred did mention that last week, um, in talking about the Syrophoenician woman who was a Gentile and who came to Jesus, and Jesus um, basically uh, called her a dog in testing her faith. Um, and then in the, ma- the, the healing of a deaf man, um, I, I made the statement that there are no unclean people. And I know what I wanted to say, and I think some of you knew what I wanted to say, but I wanted to be clear that I in no way was saying that, um, that we are without sin or that um, there are some people who are without sin. You were born in sin, I was born in sin, um, and we believe that here at this church, um, which is why we need Jesus. And what I was trying to say last week was that the Jewish people had seen themselves as clean and others as unclean, and so because they were unclean, unworthy to be a part of God's people. And so Jesus here was breaking down barriers and breaking down walls to say, she's not unclean because she's a Gentile. She, is, um, she needs the gospel just as much. So thank you, Fred. I just wanted to make that clarification. Um, if you're in Mark 8, could you stand in honor of reading of God's word? And we'll start in verse 1. Mark 8, verse 1. This is the word of God. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear, and do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning affirming the song that we sang earlier, that you alone can rescue, that you alone can save, you alone can lift us from the grave. And we're so grateful that you came down to find us, that you led us out of death. And so to you alone, 
belongs the highest praise. And we, we want to give you that praise, not only in our singing and in our giving, but in our response to your word this morning and in the way we live our lives throughout this week. Uh, God, I pray you'd guide my, my mouth and that you would open ears this morning. God, we pray for those who um, do have hard hearts, that you would uh, crush them this morning and give them um, a soft heart that they may be ready to receive your words. And guide us this morning as we learn from you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, here we come to another feeding in the book of Mark. Just uh, several weeks ago, we talked about the feeding of the 5,000 back in Mark 6. So many uh, critical scholars down through the years have said that this is just um, a variant account of a single event. So they'd look back and say, sometime way back when, when Mark was writing, or maybe after Mark, this only happened once, but the traditions kind of got split off, and so that's why we have two of these accounts. And so many, many, many Bible scholars today would deny that this feeding or the other actually happened. They would deny Scripture and say that only one event ever happened. And we here at Village Bible Church um, believe in the inerrant Word of God is without error. And so we believe that Jesus did, in fact, feed 4,000 after he had already fed 5,000. So we're going to study that this morning. And before we get going, I want to remind you, last week we talked about some geography, and I forgot the laser, but, oh, look at Don. He remembered the laser. What a guy. We're going to just point out a little bit of historical background. Uh, Last week we talked about Jesus leaving the region of Galilee here by the sea and following the arrows up into the region of Tyre and Sidon. We talked about him going outside of the Jewish lands into Gentile territory. Um, he crossed the, into Gentile territory on purpose. He meets the Syrophoenician woman who is a Gentile who's begging for him to heal her demon-possessed daughter, which he, in fact, does. And then we also talked about this region being um, far north of the Sea of Galilee in a place where some of the, the worst paganism in the, the world was located and some of the Jews' worst enemies. And so we also talked about on Jesus' return trip. He went up through Tyre and Sidon and came back around and made a long round trip, came down to Decapolis. See this at the bottom? Decapolis means ten cities. And it is a mainly Gentile region, although there were some Jewish colonies there. And Jesus specifically stays in that region and comes to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. You remember um, back in chapter 5, Jesus crosses the sea and meets a crazy man who's demon-possessed. His name is Legion, and he's broken chains, and he's gashed himself, and he is not in his right mind. And Jesus heals him in this region, on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, which is a more Gentile region. Jesus' home base is in Capernaum, which is up here in the northwest. And Jesus sends this demon-possessed man on a mission trip into the Decapolis. And if you go back and look in chapter 5, this man went into the Decapolis and spread the good news of what Jesus had done for him. So Jesus returns now to this side of the Sea of Galilee where we believe that the feeding of the 4,000 actually occurred. And that's where we start this morning. And you'll notice as we go through, if you want to compare later and look at this chapter and chapter 6, there are many similarities between the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. But there are also several differences. In fact, those are the differences that convince us these are definitely two separate events. And so Jesus, in this place, in the Decapolis, is with a great crowd, as we have seen throughout the book of Mark. And look at verse 1. 
In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, they had nothing to eat. He called his disciples to him. So the setting is a massive crowd. Jesus um, has been with them, and these people have flocked to him. And there's a massive crowd waiting, and Jesus gathers his disciples. So he calls the twelve, and he says, come here, we need to have a little huddle. He says, I have compassion on the crowd. Just like in chapter 6, Jesus looks out on these people, and he sees people that, that need food. They are hungry. And so he has compassion on them. And, and very interesting, um, Pastor Ron talked about this last month, but the, the word for I have compassion is not so simple. In the Greek, it, it literally is, is referring to your guts. Um, it's the same word that talks about when, when Judas hung himself and fell and his guts burst out of his stomach. It's the same exact word. So, so this is, a, this is a, an intestinal gut issue. And Jesus says, I feel for these people in my gut. Um, I have compassion for them. The people in ancient times, their seat of their emotions was not the heart. Right, so we talk about, I love you with all my heart, and those kinds of things. And, and the people of Israel would not have been that familiar with that. They would have talked more about their guts. Okay? Because they felt it in the pit of their stomach. They felt this compassion. So Jesus says, I have compassion on the crowd. Um, some uh, of the older versions would say tender mercies. Um, and that's the kind of thing that Jesus is feeling for these people. He says, I have compassion on the crowd. Why? Very simply, they've been with him for three days. Um, so this is longer than the feeding of the 5,000. The feeding of the 5,000, they were with him all day, one day. And this feeding, they've been with him for three days. So the assumption is Jesus has been teaching and probably healing because that's what we've seen him do all throughout Mark. People flock to him for healing and they flock to him for teaching. So they've been with him for three days. They've got nothing left to eat. So either they brought food with them and they didn't plan on staying this long, but Jesus is so captivating, they stayed and they have no food left. Um, and so this is, this is the, the situation. And they've got nothing left to eat. And in verse 3, Jesus, Jesus is thinking this through. And he says, if I send them away, hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. Jesus is concerned for their physical needs. He's concerned for their physical needs. And he says, if I send them away, some of them might not make it home. Some of them might not make it home. And that is um, where we see Jesus' compassion. And I did it again. I forgot to give you the first point. <laughs> the first point is Jesus satisfies the hunger of the crowd. So if you're taking notes from your worship folders, Jesus satisfies the hunger of the crowd. That's point number one. And then the bullet point under that is Jesus' compassion. So Jesus has compassion on these people. He feels it in his gut. And he's afraid that they're going to faint if he sends them away. And some of them aren't just walking from Anaheim to Garden Grove to go home. Some of them are going to crazy places like Lakewood. <laughs> Some of them have a ways to walk. They have a ways to go. And Jesus is concerned. And he noticed the need. Jesus notices the need. Last time the disciples brought it up to Jesus. The disciples said, hey, Jesus, these, like, we got to feed these people like, or send them away or something. There's a, they're, they're really hungry. They've been with us all day. And Jesus here notices it and Jesus brings it up to his disciples' attention. See, Jesus is always teaching his disciples. There's no such thing as a non-teachable moment when you're with Jesus. And he, he sees this. He gathers the guys and he says, look, look at all these people. Look at all these people. They're hungry. I need to do something for them. And in verse 4, your next point, we see the disciples doubt. The disciples doubt. The disciples in verse 4 answered him, they said, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? So I want you to notice a few things about this verse. The disciples say, How can one 
feed these people. In the Greek, it's, it's, it's basically implying, how can somebody, how can a person feed all these people? How can, how can some person, how can some human being do this? And that, that's a very key point we need to notice because the disciples are realistic. This, you can't feed these people. We don't have any food to give them. Um, back in the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples said it would cost a ton of money to feed these people, like three quarters of a year's wages. And, and here they're just, we can't do this. We can't feed them. Also notice um, what they call this place, a desolate place. Okay, the word in Greek means an uninhabited or lonely region, normally with sparse vegetation. We call this place a desert, okay? On, on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, um, it's not as lush, it's not as green, it's much harder to find farmland, and so that is what is going on. The disciples say, not only are we, are we far away, are we out in a, the big group, but we can't go pick any corn, we can't go pick any grain, there's nothing around here. There's nothing to feed these people. <laughs> they are in a situation of kind of despair. What are we supposed to do for these people? No one's able to do this. And the key here is to see that they're not only wanting to give these people food, but they want to fill them. So if you have the ESV, it just says, how can one feed these people? Um, but the NIV, the NASB say enough, find enough. How can we fill these people is another version. Um, the King James says, from whence can a man satisfy these men with bread? Most of the versions have this kind of sense of we need to give them enough. We need to fill them. We need to give them a hearty meal. And the word is not the normal word for feed, right? So when you get up in, in the morning, you eat breakfast, you, you, you eat, okay? So you feed your children, some of you uh, parents, you feed them. But this word is a different word, and it means, it means to fill with food. Okay, so last night, Amy and I went to Red Lobster, and we, were, we did not eat, we were filled, <laughs> okay? We, we fed, okay? We had lots of food, and we were full. And that's what these people, what the disciples are saying. How are we going to fill these people up? How are we going to satisfy their needs? And it's very interesting also to think, this shows a bit of what life must have been like with Jesus, because on the road, Jesus didn't have a home most of the time. He was traveling. He told one man, I, I don't have a place to lay my head. Um, he, he's with the twelve. He's with many more disciples that follow him all over the place. And it, it seems that if Jesus was in a situation like this with the disciples, he could just go, boom, food. But it seems like he doesn't do that. Um, this is not a normal thing. Um, traveling with Jesus is not like traveling with the circus where amazing things happen just because they're kind of crazy and weird. No, no, Jesus takes his disciples and they live real life together. Um, they, they're in need. Uh, you see in the book of John that Judas has hold of the cash. Um, they, needed, they needed money in order to buy food. So, so the disciples don't see these kind of miracles all the time, so they don't, they don't press Jesus for it. Um, and, and so it's kind of uh, helps us to understand that they've seen Jesus do unbelievable things, but they've also lived normal life with Jesus for at least a year and a half by this point. They've just lived normal life. Get to a town, go find some place to eat, find a place to lay your head, and that's what life is like with Jesus. And so they're not, they're not necessarily expecting Jesus at every moment to just make bread come out of nowhere. This is not a normal expectation for the disciples. But they, we must fault them a little bit for, for the lack of faith in that. Several months ago, 
Jesus took a little boy's sack lunch and fed 5,000 men and probably their families as well. Um, the disciples may not have a, a good memory here. They're, perhaps they're letting their, their the setting, the desolate place, their attitude um, after three days of the great crowds pressing in on Jesus get to them. But the disciples here basically ask, how can anyone do this? And as Jesus comes here, he repeats the miracle. So your next point is the repeated miracle. Verses 5 through 8, the repeated miracle. And so Jesus simply asks the disciples. He doesn't rebuke them. He's very gentle and kind with them. He just asks them a question. How many loaves do you have? And they said seven. So same question Jesus asked in chapter 6, different result, right? First, the feeding the 5,000, they had five loaves. Now they've got seven, okay? Now, that's more, but that's not a lot more for a huge crowd. That's not very helpful. And then Jesus begins in verse 6 to kind of organize the event, okay? And I think what Jesus is doing here is he, he's keying off of what the disciples said. How can one, how can a person, how can a human being feed all these people? And Jesus trying to hammer this home again and again is trying to show them I can I am the son of God I'm the one who calms the waves I'm the one that feeds many just like Moses did in the wilderness and so Jesus organizes he directs the crowd to sit down on the ground he took the seven loaves and having given thanks he broke them and he gave them to his disciples to set before the people and they set them before the crowd so so same same thing as the feeding of the 5,000 Okay, gets the disciples in, okay, break the bread, bless it, and then give it out, and it keeps going out, just like in the 5,000, just like in that feeding. So the people are sitting down, they're waiting, and the disciples begin to go around and pass out the food. And you can imagine this would have been quite an undertaking to feed a great crowd like this. Verse 7, and they had a few small fish. So it seems like partway into the meal, Someone finds out they got fish, <laughs> so they can kind of spice this meal up. And this word is, is, is a small fish, like a sardine, okay? So this is not like they got a big old salmon there. They've got some little fish to go around. And Jesus takes, takes the fish, and he blesses the fish. And then he also gives those out. And so this is just an amazing miracle where... I tried to, to visualize what's going on here. And, and it might be like if you've ever been to a magician show and you're trying to wash the magician's hands, right? You're trying to see if there's any wires or, or if there's some kind of sleight of hand going on, something going up his sleeve. I can, I can just imagine watching Jesus trying to figure out, how's he doing this? Right? Breaks the bread and then passes it out and there's more bread. And wait, hold on. That's more than seven loaves. And the bread just keeps coming and the fish just keeps coming. And the food goes out to all the people. And in verse 8, They ate and were satisfied. That word is related to feed in verse 4. So they said, how can one feed these people? Jesus shows them and does it because they're satisfied. They're full. They don't just get rations handed out. Um, They are full after this meal. And the next point is the aftermath. Just the the aftermath of of this meal, of this miracle. Look at the second half of verse 8. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. Seven baskets full. Now, this is another difference because because in the feeding of the 5,000, do you remember how many baskets were left over? There were 12. 
Okay, and this is another interesting thing is there's a different word for baskets here. The basket in the feeding the 5,000 is just a, a little basket that people would kind of take with them on a trip for a picnic or to hold something as they walk from one place to the other. So it's a fairly small basket. This word for basket is the same one that Paul gets let down over the wall in Damascus in. Um, so this is like a hamper. Uh, and so this is seven hampers full of leftover bread. So Jesus made an overabundance of food for these people. And they go around, and just like the last time, they gather it up. And in verse 9, we get the report, and there were about 4,000 people. Here's another difference. 4,000 people. In the first feeding, there were 5,000 men. 5,000 men implies that there's more people with the men, but they just counted the men. Here, there's about 4,000 total. So a little bit smaller crowd, but at that scale, it doesn't diminish the miracle at all. And many people have tried to find um, symbolism in all these numbers. So back in the feeding of the 5,000, um, there were five loaves, okay? There were 5,000 people. There were 12 baskets left over. Um, here there's seven loaves, and there's 4,000 people, and there's seven baskets left over. Uh, I'm of the mind to, to think that it's historically accurate, and that's how many baskets were left over. But the, some people have found some interesting um, symbols here. And so some people would say that the seven loaves or the seven baskets left over, stand for the seven deacons of Acts 6. Um, some would say it's the seven Noahic commands in Genesis 9. Some would say it, it represents the Gentiles, the seven nations of Canaan, when the Jews came in to overthrow them. Some would say it's a multiple of seven in the 70 peoples of the world, uh, listed in Genesis 11. And then some would say, um, because it's seven, it's a general sense of completeness. Uh, and so it is interesting that the numbers are 7 and 12, because if you read through the scriptures, those are very important numbers. But it seems to me those are a stretch um, to try to find um, what's going on there. The one thing I do think is very interesting that Jesus fed the 5,000 on the west shore of Galilee, and he fed the 4,000 on the other shore. The western shore is a predominantly Jewish shore. The eastern shore is a predominantly Gentile shore. Now, I think some people have gone too far in saying that Jesus fed Jews and Jesus fed Gentiles. Um, there were plenty of Jewish people on, on the eastern shore, but there were also many more Gentiles. And I think it follows from, the, from the, the, the miracle last week where Jesus cast out this demon from a distance from this Gentile woman's daughter. That Jesus doesn't have um, the kind of agenda where he's only going to serve um, Jews. Now, his, his ministry is to the Jewish people, and Matthew specifically says that. But Jesus never turns down Gentiles, including last week, where he seemed to turn this woman down, but it gave her, in fact, a riddle, and she, by her great faith, solved the riddle and showing that Jesus is merciful to Jew and Gentile alike. Now, verse 10, we kind of get a, just a transition. And immediately... He got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. That word we become familiar with in the book of Mark immediately happens many, many times to kind of move the story along. And here Jesus has a boat available. We don't know how, but he had a bunch of fishermen, so that's not too big of a stretch. They hop in the boat and they go across the sea to Dalmanutha. Now Dalmanutha has really caused people some problems because outside of this passage, there's never been a finding of the word Dalmanutha anywhere. Not in archaeology, not in ancient documents. And so this has also thrown critical scholars for a loop and said this, did, this didn't really happen because this place doesn't exist. Which is fairly arrogant to say 2,000 years later of a place where there were all these 
podunk little towns and fishing villages that were perhaps seasonal. Um, Matthew has a different word here in the parallel passage, and he says Magadan, which also might be Magdala, Mary of Magdalene. Um, And so uh, I believe that he's going just from the east side to the west side of the sea. He's crossing like we've seen him do several times. And Jesus concludes the feeding of the 4,000 very abruptly. He's been with them for three days. He feeds them. They're fed. We gather at the leftovers and boom, hop in the boat. And that leads us to the second event, the second scene here in this passage. And number two in your notes, the dissatisfied Pharisees test Jesus. The dissatisfied Pharisees test Jesus. So we see in the first passage that Jesus satisfied the needs of the 4,000. He satisfied their hunger. And now we see a bunch of Pharisees on the west coast of the Sea of Galilee who are dissatisfied with Jesus. And they want to, to test him. So look at verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to testify him, to test him. Sorry. When they get to the western shore, these Pharisees are on Jesus like that. And we've seen that from time to time. Back in chapter 6, Jesus and the disciples tried to get away. And then they had the feeding of the 5,000. They, they couldn't get their rest, their vacation. Um, they, they cross the, the shore, and as soon as they get to the shore, the Pharisees, boom, are on them like that. They haven't been able to rest. And again, the Pharisees are on them. And we see here that they are hostile to him. The word there is argue. Um, it can mean question, but the force of it here is they're, they're there to argue with him. They don't have a legitimate question. They're there to, to bring up a case to test this man. They hate Jesus. The Pharisees hate him. We've seen it throughout the book of Mark and we'll continue to see it. But they hate Jesus and they begin to argue with him. It's a confrontation. Jesus says to these, these Pharisees, after sighing deeply in his spirit, and the word there is like a groan. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an impatience almost to, to groan. Ugh. He, he groans and he says, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got in the boat again, went to the other side. So Jesus gets in the boat, crosses the west side. The Pharisees confront him. He just hops right back in the boat and goes to the east side. Um, very interesting uh, from Jesus, his reaction to these people. Now what they want is they're asking for a sign. And that is not necessarily just a miracle. The Pharisees and all his opponents had no place to say that Jesus wasn't a miracle worker. In fact, you remember in chapter 3, they said he was a miracle worker but he was doing it by the power of Satan. So they don't deny the miracles, they deny the source. And that was the problem that Jesus had with the Pharisees. And so they're not merely asking, hey, do a little trick. Okay, make, make that into something, or heal my throat. They're not just looking for a, a, a simple, in their minds, miracle. They're looking for a sign. Um, And throughout the Old Testament, signs are given to confirm something that the Lord has said. So the Pharisees are not just seeking a miracle. They're seeking a sign for Jesus to authenticate that he's the Messiah. And they're coming in to argue so they don't believe he is the Messiah. So they're trying to test him. They're trying to catch him. They're trying to get him to, to, to fall, to stumble. So they ask him for the sign. Jesus denies them a sign. And I think it's, it's clear that, that asking for a sign is not the problem because the, the good king Hezekiah in the Old Testament asked Isaiah for a sign. 
to confirm what he had said. And so I think the main point here is the attitude behind the asking is the problem. They're not asking genuinely. They're not coming like the woman did last week and throwing herself on the ground before Jesus. Heal my daughter. They're not desperate. What they're desperate to do is catch this man in some kind of slip-up, in some kind of lie, in some kind of failure, which they haven't been able to do. Perhaps they're looking, because it says a sign from heaven, perhaps they're looking for something like Elijah with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and the fire coming down, confirming. So in that instance, Elijah prays. He's, he's got a crowd, and he's trying to show Yahweh is God, not Baal. And so Yahweh confirms that and sends down the sign from heaven. Um, Ahaz asks for a sign and Isaiah gives it to him and he, he predicts that there will be a virgin that will give birth and there's a sign given there. Moses was, was associated with signs right from the heavens, the locusts, the flies, the darkness. So these Pharisees are looking for some extraordinary kind of fact that proves that Jesus is who he says he is. One of the commentators said this, the sought-for sign would involve an act by which God would reveal his approval of Jesus in an irrefutable way, which they have already seen. Jesus, at his baptism, goes under the water, comes out, the Spirit descends like a dove, and a voice from the heavens confirms that this is my beloved Son. I'm well pleased with him. The Pharisees are not coming in order to believe. They're not seeking, do this and we'll believe you. They are coming as hard-hearted enemies of Jesus Christ. And it seems that this is a uniquely Jewish view because in verse Corinthians 1, Paul says to the Corinthians, Jews seek for a sign and Gentiles seek for wisdom, but we preach Jesus crucified. And the Jews struggled with this. They stumbled over this. They wanted a sign. And there was a sign, and there were signs to come. And they would refute those as well. Because as we know, the greatest sign is Jesus alive three days after he is crucified. So in verses 12 and 13, we see Jesus' exasperated reply. He's exasperated with these people. And something that's very interesting in this passage and does not come out in the English. And I had, a, I had trouble with this. I had to, to wrestle with this. But what Jesus says after the question, why does this generation seek a sign? Check this out. He says, truly I say to you. He says that a lot in the book of John. This is only the second time he said it in the book of Mark. But he's about to say something very important. It's like when we say to someone, wait, hold on, listen, quiet down. I'm going to say something very important. Jesus says, truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. But in, in, in Greek, what it actually says is, truly I say to you, if a sign will be given to this generation. So it does not make any sense translating it straight to English. And what Jesus is doing is he's giving a fragment of a Jewish oath. He, he, gives, he gives the if, and he does not give the then. So, so what he's doing is like in 2 Kings 6. 2 Kings 6.31, a, a king says this about um, Elisha. May God do so to me and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. He's calling down an oath. If I don't do this, may God do this to me. Jesus is using, is using an oath here. Now remember, the New Testament is written in Greek, but Jesus most likely spoke Aramaic, which is a variation of, of Hebrew. And Jesus says, basically, I say to you, 
truly I say to you, if a sign will be given to you, then I'm not God. Or then may I die. Or then may I be proven wrong. Jesus is not just saying you're not going to get a sign. He's calling down an oath. He's angry with the Pharisees. He says, you're not going to get a sign. But he says it in a way that you're not going to get a sign. And if you do, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not God. He is incredibly angry with these people. And he calls them twice in this verse, this generation, which brings to mind Genesis 7, the story of the flood. God says Noah is is righteous in this generation. Meaning Noah's righteous and this generation sure isn't. It's also referring to the, the children of Israel when they doubted and they grumbled and they rebelled against God in the wilderness. Moses kept calling them this generation. And then this generation died off. They were, not in a, they were not able to inherit the promised land. And so Jesus uses a phrase that would have been familiar with these people. And he says, this generation. And they would have been horrified to have been associated with this generation. Jesus says, this generation, this unbelieving generation, is not going to get a sign. And in fact, the Pharisees are living out chapter 4 of Mark. When Jesus said, to some it has been given, to some it's closed. And to those who are on the outside, they don't understand. They can't get it. They can't wrap their minds around who Jesus is and what he's doing. And the Pharisees are living that out because they're on the outside. They can't, they can't trust this Jesus. They can't see him for who he is. He does not satisfy them. And so Jesus gets in the boat. And again, we change, change scenes. And, and this is just quick, just moving. Verse 14 begins the last section. And in this section, point number three is Jesus is dissatisfied with the 12. So Jesus satisfies the hunger of the crowds. And then dissatisfied Pharisees test Jesus. And now Jesus is dissatisfied with the 12. And we meet our favorite blockheads once again, who continue to show their faithlessness throughout the book of Mark. And we need to remember to, to identify with them. It is really easy to read these scriptures and say, what a bunch of morons. If I had been with Jesus, this would not have happened. I would have seen the 5,000 fed and I would have been like, Lord, feed the 4,000. You can do it. We tend to, we tend to put ourselves higher above these, these disciples. And yet I believe that we are supposed to identify with them and see what is going on with them. So let's look and see what happens. Verses 14 through 16 is the bread and the warning. The bread and the warning. It starts out with a very common, easy to understand human thing in verse 14. They forgot something. Okay, the disciples forgot. And that's understandable. They were in the desolate place with Jesus for three days with a huge crowd. We see in other places the disciples tried to help organize the crowd sometimes. They went out and talked with the crowd. They tried to to help bring people to Jesus and to keep things a little bit organized. So they're probably exhausted from this trip with Jesus. And they forgot some bread. Which is funny because they gathered seven (laughs) huge hampers of bread after the feeding. And they've forgotten their bread. So verse 14, they've forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. Okay, so there's one loaf for the 13 of them. And Jesus cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. They totally miss it. The disciple, it goes right over their head. 
Jesus tries to use this physical example like he does often. Here's a physical thing. I'm going to get a spiritual truth from it. Which is what the parables are, right? Sower, sowing his seed. Okay, house built on a rock. These things that people understand. Take the physical representation, give a symbolic or a spiritual meaning. And so the the disciples go, ah, we forgot bread. And Jesus sees a, a beautiful opening to use this thing they're very familiar with, bread, to teach a spiritual truth. And the disciples totally miss it. And in some respects, Jesus' caution does seem to come out of left field. Okay, they're, they're talking about, we don't have enough bread. And he's like, watch out for the Pharisees. I'm like, Jesus, we're on a boat and we don't have enough bread. Like, what are you talking about? So there, maybe there's a little bit of understanding here. But I believe that this is a result of what Jesus just did. He just had a confrontation with the Pharisees. He just talked with these people that hate him, that argued with him, that tested him. And he gets in the boat and it's still on his mind. And, and Jesus is, is angry. But we also have seen Jesus, he's a compassionate one. And he loves these Pharisees. But he gets in the boat and I just, I just see it weighing on him. And then when the disciples bring up the bread, it's a great way to, to, to talk about this. But the disciples miss it. So what does Jesus say? He says, watch out. And then he says, beware. So it's like double. Watch out. Beware. He, he doubles it up there. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now I had to do a lot of study here because I'm not familiar with bread or bread making or yeast or leaven or any of those things. If you have the NIV, it says yeast. Um, a lot of other versions say leaven. Um, yeast will make those of you who know what yeast is and how it works think of something in your kitchen or something you can go buy at the store. Okay, but that's not what's going on here. That's that's not what is talked about. And I'm going to read because I cannot explain this without quoting someone who's much smarter than me. So here's what one of the commentators said: Yeast connotes to us that fresh and wholesome ingredient that makes dough rise and gives bread a pleasing light texture. I like to say it makes it fluffy. Okay? The ancient world used the more dangerous leaven. It was produced by keeping back a piece of the previous week's dough, storing it in suitable conditions, and adding juices to promote the process of fermentation. But this homemade rising agent was fraught with health hazards because it could easily become tainted. It would then spread poison when baked with the rest of the dough. It, in turn, would infect the next batch. And throughout the, the, the scriptures, leaven is almost universally, not quite, but almost universally used as a symbol for evil spreading. A little amount gets in and it spreads throughout. And so Jesus is talking about something the disciples would have been very familiar with, the leaven of the Pharisees. And so leaven, even by a Gentile such as Plutarch, was considered to be representative of corruption. So Plutarch said this, Leaven is itself also the product of corruption and produces corruption in the dough with which it is mixed. And altogether, the process of leavening seems to be one of putrefaction. At any rate, if it goes too far, it completely sours and spoils the dough. So that's the warning that Jesus is giving. Watch out for this leaven of the Pharisees, this leaven of Herod that ruins the dough. It gets in and infects things. It, it, stops, it stops from happening something good and in, fa- and in fact poisons what is going on. So we have leaven of the Pharisees and leaven of Herod. So it's important to, to know, we know what the leaven means now, but what's the significance of the Pharisees and of Herod? Well, the Pharisees is fairly easy because Jesus just talked to them, and I believe that's probably talking about their unbelief. The Pharisees just came to Jesus, argued with him, confronted him, trying to get him to stumble and to fall, and this proves their leaven the fact that that they do follow god they know the scriptures most pharisees could quote huge chunks 
of the first five books of the Bible. They knew all these things, but there was this, this leaven that would get in and ruin everything. So, so there's people all over this world, especially in college campuses, that know much more about the Bible than most of us do. But they're sons of hell. They're sons of Satan. They don't believe it. They know it, but they don't believe it. And so we need to be careful that we're not just those who want to gather up facts and knowledge. Um, some of us are very prone to do that. I love trivia and facts and knowledge, and especially about the Bible. But that does not mean that just because I know when the northern kingdom was taken by the Assyrians, <laughs> that somehow that knowledge in itself is going to change my heart. The, the Pharisees knew these things up here. But it didn't make any difference. It didn't change how they approached Jesus. So Jesus says, watch out for the leaven. And he also says the leaven of Herod. Back in chapter 3, we saw the Pharisees and the Herodians, those who followed Herod, getting together to conspire against Jesus. Which is really weird because they didn't get along. Herodians and the Pharisees were on polar opposite ends of the political spectrum, of the religious spectrum, but they were able to unite against Jesus. And so Jesus, again, here, combines them. That although they were polar opposites, the one thing they could agree on was hatred of Jesus. And so he says, watch out for the leaven of Herod. In the book of Luke, during the trials of Jesus, where Jesus is before Pontius Pilate, Pontius Pilate actually sends him to Herod. And Herod receives Jesus, and he wants to see a sign. He's kind of excited. Yay, Jesus is here. Do something cool. Jesus wants to see a sign. I mean, sorry, Herod wants to see a sign from Jesus. And Jesus doesn't give him a sign. Very similar to how he doesn't give the Pharisees a sign here. So Jesus tells his disciples, watch out for that leaven. And in verse 16, they completely miss the point. And they start arguing among themselves about the bread. That word discussing is the same word that we use for arguing. Who, who forgot the bread? Was it you, Andrew? Philip, I thought it was supposed to be you. Peter, you block it. No, they're, they're arguing about who forgot the bread. And Jesus is sitting in the boat. <laughs> Guys, you missed it. And so we get into Q&A time with Jesus. And this is not a good Q&A time. This is not like, hey, Jesus, what does it mean in Genesis 6? No, this is, this is Jesus asked the questions. And the disciples have no answers. So Jesus says in verse 17, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. Good, they remembered, they got it. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, seven. Yes, correct. Jesus says, do you not yet understand? So they knew the facts. They remember, they go, oh yeah, there was 12. I remember that. Oh yeah, there was seven. They remember the facts. But Jesus goes, it's not what I'm talking about. Do you see what's going on? And I love how Mark leaves it. He doesn't explain it. Do you not yet understand? Boom, next passage. So I think it's partially to make us feel like the disciples. Yeah, wow, what's Jesus getting at? I don't know. <laughs> he doesn't say. Do you not yet understand? Understand what? This is one of the parts where you're like, Mark, you could have written a little bit more because I'd like to know more about what Jesus had to say. But he doesn't. And in fact, what he does is he probably shames the disciples here. A lot of what he says sounds a lot like Jeremiah 5. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. In Ezekiel 12, 
Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house who have eyes to see, but they see not, who have ears to hear, but hear not, for they are a rebellious house. Jesus is telling the disciples, can't you get it? Do you see? Or are you like those on the outside? But the, the most beautiful part of this, of this last verse is do you not yet understand? Because that's the key to the next several weeks of sermons. Do you not yet understand? There's hope with a yet. Okay? Your kid's not walking yet. They will. Okay? You're not getting this yet. They will. Yet implies that it's going to happen. Down the road, it will happen. And that's what we see even in next week's message. We'll see that they begin to understand. Do you not yet understand? I think some of what Jesus is saying is, I fed this many people. You guys have a loaf of bread. We're 13 people. I'm the bread maker. I'm the bread maker. I can make this happen. In John 6, the feeding of the 5,000. Okay, he calls himself the bread from heaven, the bread of life. That's who Jesus is. He satisfies. And you this morning, if you're here and you're not satisfied, maybe it's financially. Many of us are struggling in this economy. Are you satisfied in Jesus or does it take more money and more stuff and more luxuries to satisfy you? Or are you satisfied in Jesus? Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. There are all kinds of passages throughout the Psalms. David says, Moses says, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Let's be the kind of people that are satisfied and content with what God gives us because he has given us not only this place, our vehicles, our physical blessings, but he has given us even his son. And Paul says if he's given up his son, there's nothing he won't give us. So that's the God that we serve, the satisfying Savior that we need to love, to recommit our trust to this morning. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the gathering this morning. Thank you for what you've shown us in the word. I pray that you would correct any of my mistakes and that you would illuminate our hearts to see what you have for us this morning. May we take this sermon, this message, this, this word from you out of these doors. May it not stay here. May it spread like leaven in our lives and affect every part of our lives that you alone satisfy. Others will let us down. Cars will break. Computers will fall apart. But you will never let us down. You always satisfy. So satisfy us this morning as we go on to to fellowship and to learn more about you in our Sunday school classes. In Jesus' name, amen.